welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil. The first recorded Portuguese person to visit Canada was a fellow called João Fernandes Lavrador, a mariner on a mission for the Portuguese king. He sailed along the coast of Newfoundland and the land to which he gave his name, Labrador. For all we know, he wasn't even the first. Portuguese fishers were working in the North Atlantic for hundreds of years beforehand, but Labrador left his name. The Portuguese started to immigrate to Canada in important numbers during the early 1950s. To honor the 50th anniversary of Portuguese immigration, Canada Post issued a stamp in 2003 to honor Pedro da Silva, Canada's first mailman. He came from Portugal, but lived with his family in Beauport, Quebec, according to the 1681 census. Today, about 450,000 Canadians claim some sort of Portuguese ancestry. That's about 1% of the total population, and they do have a history. It's a fascinating story, and with me today is Gilberto Fernandes, and his passion for Portugal and Canada is a lot more modern. He is the author of This Pilgrim Nation, The Making of the Portuguese Diaspora in Post-War North America. It is published by the University of Toronto Press. Gilberto Fernandes, welcome to the Champlain Society podcast. Thanks uh, for having me. Good to be here. witness to yesterday for this episode. Take us to May 13th, 1953. Okay. Uh, well, that was the date that the um, Saturnia, um, uh, the steam liner, um, arrived at Pier 21 in Halifax, uh, carrying the first um, group of uh, Portuguese migrant workers to be brought to Canada under a bulk order labor migration scheme. Uh, that was negotiated between the government of Canada and the government of Portugal. Um, on that particular day, I mean, that was just the first of many trips um, that would last till 1961. That was the length of that particular migration arrangement. Uh, on that one ship, there was about uh, 69 uh, migrants, uh, all of them men, uh, including um, Antonio Souza, which happened to be uh, the father of our former uh, Minister of Finance here in Ontario, uh, Charles Souza. Um, that group of men uh, who came primarily as sojourners or, or migrant workers, at least in their minds when they first came to Canada, have been referred to in the Portuguese community as the pioneers of the pioneer generation. They came as uh, primarily laborers, uh, or at least that's what the Canadian government wanted out of them. Um, there were actually some, uh, officially anyways, uh, skilled workers, but primarily uh, the uh, just under 7,000 workers that came into that program were quote unquote unskilled workers. And they came like many other uh, European migrants in that post-war period, um, came uh, with one-year uh, one contracts with farmers, with uh, railway companies, and a number of other employers. And so they would work in as farmhands, uh, especially, but also as uh, rail track uh, construction and maintenance workers. Uh, they worked in logging um, and in other um, occupations, heavy labor occupations, uh, usually in the hinterland. The Saturnia, Gilberto, 
seems to have not been forgotten. It's it's still uh, a, a touchstone. Uh, it's a milestone in the in the history of the Portuguese. It's remembered to this day, isn't it? Absolutely. And in this case, the Portuguese case, because there is a specific date that people can celebrate. Uh, as you mentioned in your introduction, that there had been there have been Portuguese uh, people uh, in Canada since before there was a Canada. Um, especially in the, the North Atlantic regions, uh, where's today Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, many of them uh, fishing cod uh, uh, on the Grand Banks. Uh, but there are also, this, you know, before 1953, uh, a number of uh, Portuguese Americans or Portuguese immigrants in the U.S. who, who moved to Canada. Um, and some, some of the fishermen, for instance, in St. John's or Newfoundland would have uh, jumped ship in St. John's and, and, and remain there or go further into the interior. But there wasn't really a community per se. I mean, there might have been, it's hard to say, we don't actually know, but uh, any, upwards to a thousand or so Portuguese living in Canada before 1953. So the community has that milestone because it can actually pinpoint a date where that first shipload arrived. What prompted this ship? Was this an approach that was made by the government of Canada? How did these people wind up in, in Halifax? Remember, this is a time of great uh, Canadian uh, economic expansion in Canada. There's really economic boom after the Second World War. Uh, there's all kinds, all kinds of humanitarian um, concerns. Uh, there's uh, international um, governing uh, agreements. You know, happening, uh, pushing uh, Canada to open and, and, and liberalize its immigration policy, uh, which started with um, uh, William Mackenzie in 1947. Mackenzie King, yes. Before the Portuguese uh, migrant workers, there were a number of other workers who came under similar, or if not identical, schemes, the Italians, Greeks, and others. And it was a scheme that was adopted uh, very much replicating in many ways the uh, recruitment and migration uh, arrangements that the Canadian government had uh, applied when recruiting uh, war refugees or displaced persons from uh, the refugee camps in Europe. When those camps were depleted, essentially, especially after the, the Americans started doing the same, uh, there was still a, a, a very significant uh, demand for labor, especially uh, uh, unskilled um, uh, labor, and you know, capitalist uh, interests, economic interests, uh, employers, essentially uh, pushed or convinced the government to uh, procure uh, these laborers in parts of Europe, which are previously uh, seem to be undesirable. So it's a it's a, a real uh, conjugation of circumstances. There's a push and there's a pull. Yes. So from from there's a pull from Canada and the push from Portugal. Um, try not to take too much time with this, but no, it's good. <laughs> but the essential. It's important to understand. Um, yes. Portugal was under a dictatorship, uh, right wing uh, conservative dictatorship, uh, fascist or fascist like. It's a bit of an academic argument. Uh, which had been in power since 1926. This is the Salazar dictatorship. Salazar dictatorship, known as Estado Novo or New State. Um, I can go into greater detail about you know the, its characteristics uh, later on, if you wish. But essentially, what we need to know for now is it was a very uh, weak uh, economy, very underdeveloped, under-industrialized, uh, with a very uh, labor-intensive. Uh, agricultural uh, economy, 
um, and with significant large amount of unemployment uh, everywhere, really, but especially in the Azores, where the majority of Portuguese immigrants uh, would come from. Uh, and so the regime, the dictatorship, uh, or at least the the branch of the dictatorship, because it, it was not a monolithic uh, thing, the branch that dealt with immigration uh, was interested in uh and, and finding a, a safety valve to remove some of the pressure of having uh, too many uh, unemployed people who could not be absorbed by the you know traditional rural economy, uh, and so they are looking for ways to basically allow for a, a, a official and an approved state-sanctioned and controlled movement of migrant workers into a continent. Uh, that had already a traditional, especially in the United States here I'm referring to, of, of uh, uh, receiving Portuguese immigrants, especially Azorians, and developing large migration chains. And so the Portuguese government was hoping to basically release itself of that social and economic pressure of having uh, you know, uh, a miserable uh, uh, and a highly unemployed population in these, in these more rural areas, and also to um, create uh, remittances, uh, streams of remittances, which were hugely important. This is the money that, that Portuguese uh, immigrants to North America would send back to their families back home. Absolutely, and not just North America. I mean, all over the the world, and the Portuguese diaspora is quite vast. Right. Um, Canada, in, in, you know, in the in the ranking of, of of communities, or even Toronto, say, while it is a expressive and a significant large community, um, it's probably not even in the top five. I would have to check today's you know numbers. So it would be mostly people going to Brazil, where they spoke Portuguese. Would that would that be a logical assumption. So uh, Brazil was the main uh, destination of Portuguese immigration till the 1930s, okay. uh, and then for a number of reasons that changed. Uh, a lot of that had to do with the Great Depression and changes in in policies in Brazil uh, around the issue of transferring funds to uh, the immigrants' homelands. Uh, so in the 1950s, were the U.S. Uh, was one of the main, if not the, the main destination, uh, or at least had the largest communities, uh, but also other places, uh, South Africa, um, Europe, of course. And uh, let me say this, after 1961, which is when the post-war exodus, Portuguese exodus really begins, and, and that is tied to the beginning of the colonial wars, France, uh, Germany, and other European nations, especially France, is the is the main um, destination for Portuguese immigrants. And to this day, I think it's safe to say, still, Paris is the third largest Portuguese city right? after Lisbon and Porto. Yeah. <laughs> now, you let's unpack this a little bit more. Um, mm -hmm. You're depicting the Salazar government engineering, as you say, for a, a release valve to. Um, an escape valve to release some of the pressure internally. Did the Salazar government have ideas about what the emigrants would do in foreign lands, or were they, were they just washing their hands of that community and just hoping that they would be remittances? Right. Um, it's difficult to explain in a nutshell what was the position of of the regime of the Stad Novo, because it wasn't ever clear. He was mm -hmm. very ambivalent and in, in many ways ambivalent by design since that sort of provided officials with a degree of discretion. Uh, but as I said 
previously um the dictatorship was not monolithic it was it was there was a lot of conflicts internal conflicts um nothing that would you know come out to the to the outside and nothing uh of a very political uh, ideological nature although there were some but uh, primarily in terms of uh, some worldviews within the same ideology so for instance and, and interests primarily economic interests so you had for instance, the ministries that dealt primarily with internal affairs, including the Ministry of Internal Affairs. And you had the more uh, outward-looking ministries, Ministry of Foreign Affairs or Ministries of Overseas po uh, Provinces, which is a, a, a fancy way of saying colonies. And the, the external uh, ministries did have, relatively speaking, a more liberal um worldview uh in many ways because it's it's uh, foreign corps as diplomats their diplomats uh lived uh, existed the practice their you know their their profession in many cases in liberal uh liberal democratic uh, countries and as members of nato united nations and so on um initially during salazar so which would have gone till 1968 uh Immigration was under a uh, the purview of the internal affairs, which dealt with it primarily as an issue of domestic labor, uh, policing, heavily policed, especially clandestine immigration, which has been a constant to this day uh, of Portuguese uh, history uh, and structural, uh, you know, its structural uh, characteristics of its economy. Um, and it was always a headache for the Estado uh, Novo, uh, which in one way allowed, even if, even if not publicly say, but kind of allowed immigrants to leave, uh, especially immigrant men, was very stringent on keeping the women inside so that it would guarantee those remittances, so that the men would send money to somebody. Um, but and um, so it allowed for for significant immigration in many parts because it just couldn't help it to to um, stop it. But in other ways, it was heavily policed, and also because a lot of the cadres or the the government officials in the news in the Estado Novo, especially those who dealt with the immigration file were themselves local um uh, bosses uh you know they they were the local elites in these agrarian communities these were ten were usually the people that the immigrants would go to to ask for permission to ask for loans for for the ship fare so so and and these were uh landowners in in large part who weren't very happy about the fact um, that you know, with with the dwindling number of laborers around, uh, would you know, other the ones that stayed uh, had more leverage in terms of negotiating wages, and I say that you know carefully in terms of how much they could negotiate. Um, but anyways, there was a resistance from within the government, uh, parts of the government. Uh, resistance to immigration, especially clandestine immigration. And Salazar himself really didn't care about immigrants. He didn't really put much thought into immigrants uh, whatsoever. And we know that from various uh, biographies and obviously the uh, you know, files in the archives. He really only cared uh, primarily about the remittances, which were really key to sustain this otherwise unsustainable economy and to, and to pay for the wars. Well, okay, I don't want to spend too much time on on Portugal, but there is there is a, a moment here when, as you said earlier, Salazar Salazar 
gets into an accident in 1968, mm-hmm. and he's re- he's replaced by Marcelo Caetano, uh, and that'll be that'll that'll last for another five six years when the dictatorship is overturned by the revolution of the Carnations. How how did the affairs in Portugal have an impact on the many immigrants that have settled in Canada all through the 1950s and 1960s? Uh, it, so if you're referring to the transition from Salazar to Caetano, well, um, you're right. So Salazar did uh, he basically fell from a chair and, and eventually became died from, from that uh, injury. Um, and it was, it was already, I believe, 80-something at that point. Caetano came in, was supposed to be a moderate, supposed to be a liberal solution from within the regime. Turned out n- not to be the case, in large part due to the constraints and um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, the, the priorities given to the colonial wars. But that being said, uh, as far as the immigration file, this was probably the most, um, it was one of the few issues where the new dictator departed from Salazar, uh, who had rarely addressed the immigrants uh, at all. And so under Caetano, uh, some of the ideas that had already been uh, the developing in those outward looking ministries uh, and even within the uh, increasing number of uh, progressive socially progressive Catholics uh, when people inspired by Vatican II liberation theology and so on within the the, the Portuguese regime which was heavily Catholic um, there's a shift towards a more uh, liberal and a you know relatively liberal view of immigration as something seen in more positive life, more normal fact of modern life in in, uh, in industrial societies. And so there's a number of policies that were introduced, especially after 1969, that invested in uh, uh, strengthening relations with what was, the, the term wasn't used by then, but, but the fact it was uh, a diaspora building policies. But of course, it came, came late because by 70, by the crisis of 72, 73, the Portuguese immigration, mass migration really uh, ends. From the point of view of those over here um, and the expatriate communities, uh, it was in their eyes a bit of a continuation because like I said, a lot of those official policies coming from Lisbon were following on the practices that the many of the diplomats were doing on the ground in, in their communities in many ways you know, just out of their own initiative, sometimes they would they would pay out of their small their own pockets, uh, small amounts, of course, to you know to pay for a, a teacher's salary and that sort of thing. Um, so it was welcomed by those uh, immigrants uh, and community leaders who were not opposed to the regime or or, or somewhat ne- neutral to the regime. Um, and so um, it, you know, it, it was a continuation, but uh, uh, more uh, resources. Uh, behind it, continuation of of some of the policies, uh, some of them sort of informal policies, um, they were being tested in these in these communities. So, so you're saying that the the, the mass of of uh, well, let's talk about these Portuguese immigrants to Canada. Uh, your, and your book, I have to emphasize, your book is about the making of the Portuguese diaspora in post-war North America. You're not just focusing on Canada, but let's talk about those people who do come to Canada. It's it's it strikes me reading your book that these are mostly people coming from the Azores. Why is that? So in both the U.S. and, and Canada, the majority of the Portuguese uh, in these communities are from the Azores. Uh, that percentage is even higher in Canada. Um, the reason, well, 
first because the Portuguese government uh, during those first uh, uh, during that initial uh, migration uh, scheme, labor migration scheme, really pushed. Azorians and the Canadian immigrant uh, immigration officials were initially very reluctant uh, for a number of reasons, uh, primarily basically discrimination and, and uh, um, stereotypes around Southern Europeans and Latin Catholic uh, immigrants. So in, in, in many ways, very similar to the Italian experience where the Canadian officials wanted Northerners, Northerner Italians and not Southerners. Uh, and in, in, in the end, uh, the the Italian government uh, won, let's say, because the, the the Southerners became the majority. So it's similar uh, in the Azorian uh, Portuguese case. The Azores too has a long, long history of immigration to the U.S. Um, and in many cases, uh, these uh, the Azorians were li leaving their home uh, towns forever. Uh, and in many cases, most of their families had already transplanted to North America and they were escaping. Well, there was misery everywhere in Portugal. In the Azores was even worse. Um, yeah. And, and the mainlanders, for the most part, they, they wanted to return. And that was significance in how they engaged with their communities over here. You mentioned the Italians, uh, Gilberto. Is there is there is the how does the experience of the Portuguese different than the Italians or does it does it compare but maybe at a smaller scale how how would you compare the two experiences Well, they're very similar uh, and uh, they're very similar but with significant uh, differences uh, and and at times that similarity kind of uh, makes it difficult to talk about the specific. Uh, for instance, social problems exist in the Portuguese community. Um, the Italians, you know, myself, when I started studying the Portuguese community, there wasn't a lot written about Portuguese immigrants uh, in history or other social sciences. And so I ended up reading a lot about Italians in Canada and, and, and my supervisors are, are Italian Canadian scholars themselves. So there is a lot of commonality, especially in Considering in the eyes of the uh, the host uh, government of, of uh, Anglo, not just Anglo, but Anglo or French Canadians, these are very similar. Uh, Southern Europeans, Catholics, more or less look the same too. They're, the men are, are working construction side by side. But the, the main difference is the fact that the Italian community had been in Canada much longer. That had been a first cohort that came before uh, the Second World War. And therefore, there was already a number of uh, institutions and leaders that could sort of integrate the post-war newcomers and is much, much larger. And that is, is significant. Uh, there's a critical mass there that just didn't exist uh, in the Portuguese community in Canada. So we're, we're talking about the, quite remarkably uh, a span of about 20 years. The the arrival of the the first the first new wave of Portuguese immigrants in 1953. Uh, we have the, the transition to the Caetano government and whatever that may mean in terms of the uh, Lisbon's approach to, to, uh, to immigrants and the diaspora. And then in 1972, we have the, uh, the, the creation of, of official multiculturalism in Canada. Did, did Canada's multicultural policies have a particular impact on these new Portuguese, these these new Canadians, or or how did the, the the Portuguese diaspora in Canada make use of the multicultural policies? How, did, what impact did that have, if any? Yeah, absolutely, it did have tremendous impact. Not so much in terms of the migration 
policies itself, but in the in the creation formation of the community. Um, but let me just go back really quickly, just to add, um, because uh, I didn't mention it before, the real uh, mass migration to Canada from Portugal starts in 1961. And that's an important date because that's when the colonial wars begin, uh, and. And that was that's where uh, these first uh, migrant uh, men uh, start calling for family and kin, uh, and there's a significant chain migration, but also significant clandestine migration from war resistors uh, and so on, and political exile. So you're saying that there's a re so that these men are, are are bringing their their wives or girlfriends to Canada at that point, starting in the '60s. Yes. So uh, they, I mean, it really starts from the moment they, they arrived in Canada. So in those 50s, uh, in the 50s, but in after 61, it's where you really see a significant boost because you have you have a lot of families with young families with with boys approaching military age, which are trying to escape from, from the draft. So in terms of multiculturalism, it had absolutely a tremendous impact um, it, because it's uh, even before the official policy. I mean, there was quite a lot of proto multiculturalism happening, especially in Toronto uh, in the 1960s and with local initiatives, local officials, um, you know, doing all kinds of uh, ethnic, you know, the, the typical 3Ds, a diet, dress and and, uh, and dance of multiculturalism, the sort of caravana like multiculturalism, which was it's a very important venue for Portuguese community leaders and 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 uh, organizations to to uh, present themselves to to their to their hosts to their fellow Canadians uh, to uh, also to perform their culture for others but also for themselves and their descendants um, and to you know have a, a point of pride you know too to be to be accepted among these other uh, other nations. Uh, so in that case, it's very similar to other uh, ethnic communities. What I would like to say, as far as the Portuguese that might be uh, different, uh, is that, well, unlike most other European uh, immigrant groups, the Portuguese came from a dictatorship, a fascist-like dictatorship, which had a tremendous, or at least to its size anyways, a robust propaganda um, uh, system. And what is interesting is that the Salazar government uh, and the Caetano afterwards really took advantage of multiculturalism to push its own propaganda and its own political ideology, which is very much based on ideas of a romanticized uh, folksy ruralism, uh, traditions. Uh, and so, you know, some of the most emblematic uh, ethnic cultural manifestations for the Portuguese, uh, it's these like folk dances, what we call ranchos, ranchos folkloric, uh, which is not obviously not unique to to the Portuguese. It's, it's, it's a, a, a phenomenon across Europe, but that was we can say it was an invented tradition by the Portuguese government to promote the sense of national culture, to promote, again, those ideals of uh, conservative rural uh, living. And the notion here was that the, the transplant of, 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 that, of those dances uh, in North America would, would somehow support the, 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 the Portuguese community? Is that the idea? It's, it would support, from the point of view of the government, it helped it sell its products, its exports. It helped sell Portugal as a tourist destination. Oh, right. Okay. Um, and it, it, um, 
it was a way also to maintain the quote unquote national identity or, or prevent what the language of the user prevent the denationalization of its expatriates. So the Portuguese government, again, parts of the dictatorship really uh, invested in keeping those cultural ties because that would mean also economic ties, political ties, which then the government uh, made use of, uh, and politically speaking too, um, at a time when Canada was one of the few NATO allies to speak uh, publicly against Salazar and against the colonial wars. Um, and so it was, so yeah, the Portuguese government was very much interested in, in maintaining that connection and maintaining with the homeland and the homeland culture and the language and so forth for economic, political, and really uh, national uh, interests, uh, which even though it didn't articulate itself yet as a diaspora nation, at least not at the core of the regime, but somewhere on the periphery, they were kind of starting to understand it's, itself as that, but it was an imperial nation, which already had in its own um, discourse and self-understanding uh, an idea of a nation that went beyond borders, or there was a, you know, it, it was a global citizenship, even, even if not in these exact terms, but effectively, that's what it meant. Now, I, I want to circle back, though, to the notion of Canadian multicultural policy having an impact on the Portuguese immigrants settling here. Your book, I remind our listeners, your book is about the making of the Portuguese diaspora in post-war North America. Can you can you tell us whether the experience of Portuguese Canadians was was significantly different than the experience of Portuguese immigrants to the United States? Uh, in many ways, yes, especially in the public life of these communities. Uh, in terms of the private life, the everyday life of immigrants, uh, less so. I mean, there's there's probably more commonalities than there are differences, especially if you go at an individual and family level. And in many cases, these families were, like I said, uh, um, transnational families. There were, you know, uh, people, especially Azorians, you know, in Toronto, probably had relatives in New Bedford or Fall River, you know, these communities in Massachusetts or Newark, etc. Um, but at a public sort of civil, uh, civic level, political level, there were significant differences. Uh, and even in terms of uh, how Portuguese uh, immigrants and leaders connected with their government officials in their respective countries. So, I mean, and the differences are, there are, there are many and there are many factors behind. I'll just mention a few. Uh, like the Italians, I said previously, the Portuguese American communities were also much older, dating back to the 1820s. Uh, they were spread out across the country, but heavily, densely populated in the Eastern Atlantic uh, states, especially Massachusetts and the greater metropolitan uh, New York area. Um, a lot of institutions and organizations already, a lot of established leaders, some of them in high profile and significant positions, like attorney generals and, and, and uh, state senators and the like. Um, but I, I think the, the, the primary difference or the main difference, or maybe the most interesting, is the racial identity aspect. So uh, in the US, where the racial matrix um, is uh, of greater significance than in Canada, which not to say that it's not, but certainly in the history of the US, you know, having full uh, access to your citizenship rights is really determined by your race. Um, 
in 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 the U.S., the Portuguese were perceived as this in-between uh, community um, because, uh, in large part, because there was a as a, a minority but significant uh, in number a community of Cape Verdean immigrants living in these Portuguese neighborhoods uh, in uh, Massachusetts, and Cape Verdeans who were themselves sort of in between peoples of the Portuguese empire in that they they come from uh, uh, mixed, uh, they're mixed race, uh, and they've occupied historically sort of um, um, uh, administrative positions within the empire. Uh, so a lot of, the, most of these uh, early generation Cape Verdeans, they saw themselves as European, Portuguese, and white, even if it, to the eyes of American uh, Americans in general, they would be black, uh, and in some cases very obviously so. They would go. They would understand themselves uh, absolutely as European, Portuguese, and white. And so that association with uh, Cape Verdeans, which, by the way, in in the early years uh, or pre-war, uh, a lot of the European Portuguese uh, community ended up uh, distancing themselves from that Portuguese. Uh, identity because he was quote-unquote tainted with the presence of these Cape Verdeans. And so uh, for that, because of the sort of the the kind of occupations that immigrants often entered uh, for a number of reasons, uh, you know, having to do, of course, with uh, uh, you know the pseudo scientific, uh, you know, uh, racist uh, science that saw Southern Europeans as you know lower in the in the Europe ranking of European races and so on and so forth. Um, they were they were considered to be this in between uh, community as far as race goes. So you're depicting, Gilberto, you're, you're depicting uh, a Portuguese emigration to the United States, mostly coming from Cape Verde and in Canada, mostly coming from the Azores. And that's what's the fundamental difference? Well, I should qualify. The majority of immigrants, Portuguese immigrants to the United States came, uh, uh, came or went from the Azores <laughs> and the mainland, but there was okay, a significant okay. minority of Cape Verdeans. Um, and so, and just to finish that point, of course, the, I, the racial identity of the Portuguese community, which as with any race or most racial identities, is is a construct and, a, and it's an historical construct that changed significantly over time, uh, and definitely there's there's uh, I speak about that in my book, would affect or impact the the kind of resources and the way that the Portuguese community could go about accessing those resources, uh, government resources, especially. Uh, with uh, you know equity or affirmative action programs, with the civil rights uh, movement, black power movement, and so on. So all of those conversations, uh, while they are heard in Canada, they really impact the Portuguese communities in the U.S. Let's talk. Okay, let's stay with the Canadian um, experience. Where were the who were the leaders that emerged? Uh, you, you mentioned in the book uh, a whole variety of, of individuals who who emerged in the 1960s and 1970s in particular. Where did the leadership come from? And again, it's it's useful to remind our listeners that we're mostly talking about a Toronto experience and to some degree a Montreal experience, isn't it? Yeah. So um, Toronto, Montreal, uh, Vancouver being the three largest communities. Um, but in my book, I, I, as far as Canada goes, I speak mostly about Toronto and Montreal. Um, so uh, 
like all communities and like all ethnic communities, the Portuguese were heterogeneous. Um, in that way, they were very much, um, in, in that way, multiculturalism did a disservice in that multiculturalism policy, or at least from the point of view of the government, the top-down perspective, which tended to look at these ethnic communities as uh, homogenous. And it sought uh, representatives or leaders uh, with which to communicate. Um, and oftentimes that meant it would end up empowering uh, so-called leaders, many of them self-appointed leaders, uh, which were themselves, which were also empowered by Portuguese diplomats who uh, had the opportunity in Canada, more so than the US, to be present since the early days of community formation and empower by giving access to resources and, and, and status and so on, uh, particular leaders that, that deemed most useful. Now, uh, I'm generalizing here because it's a, it was a complex community, uh, but for, for our sake of, of simplifying for our conversation, you could say that there were the priests, which initially, um, and really until the revolution, but especially early years, were uh, heavily influential. The Catholic priests, uh, the majority of whom were sent from Portugal. Uh, then you had your secular leaders. Uh, these would be business people, uh, small business people for the most part, uh, people who came with some uh, relatively higher education. Some of them could speak English, including laborers that had worked in the American air base in uh, uh, Lages in Terceira Island, uh, people who could act as, as brokers between the Canadian and Portuguese society, say. Uh, and then you had the uh, political exiles, which are leaders uh, themselves um, in their section of the community. Uh, and then later on in the 70s, you have the emergence of a new generation of uh, second generation or, or what sociologists like to call 1.5. So these would be children who came from Portugal, but were born and oh, sorry, they were raised here. And they're a newer generation uh, which could navigate uh, very easily both Portuguese and Canadian societies, and it tended to be a lot more progressive. And they were inspired by, again, civil rights movement, uh, black power, uh, you know, feminism. Um, and of course, after the revolution, the very Marxist uh, socialist ideas of the Portuguese uh, revolution. So you have like generally four large cohorts of, of leaders. Say. And together they shape what you call the making of the Portuguese diaspora. To, to what degree did these leaders from the church, from the, the professions, uh, to a certain degree, the, the labor sector, they gave, they gave the Portuguese uh, community in Canada a particular uh, a particular shape and form? Yes, I mean, in many ways, uh, similar to other communities, um, this is, it's not completely original to Canada, of course, but there's a lot of, of course, Canada and Toronto or Montreal has its own specific specificities that really impacted the way that these things, uh, you know, uh, developed. But um, yes, I mean, these leaders, um, until the 1970s, uh, were primarily either on the right. The the the, the dominant faction um, was uh, either um, supporters of the regime or or at least um, not critical of. Um, which is not to say that every leader within that faction sort of subscribed to the you know the authoritarian uh, ideology, but they were nevertheless 
you know, at least they made use of the resources available to them. Um, uh, another significant point I should mention is, at least in the secular uh, community structure, so we're talking the clubs and associations and so on, uh, which are many, many, many of them, um, the leaders were primarily mainlanders, oh. so from the mainland, which were who were a minority, but um, they were perceived to be, and they asserted themselves to be, the uh, true representatives of Portuguese culture. And and also, these were the people that the Portuguese government um, supported the most. Uh, meanwhile, Azorians, uh, which had a long history of isolation and, and marginalization from, from Lisbon, the uh, Lisbon government, uh, who had, uh, in their mental maps even, and their position in the world, uh, most a lot of Azorians, especially those who would come to Canada, had far more connections with the Azorian diaspora or communities in the U.S. They, that they had with Portugal per se. And in many cases, it was the remittances that they would receive from their their family members. And by that, I don't mean just money, but even you know clothing and magazines and so on that really connected them with the rest of the world. So uh, there was an isolation. Uh, then, um, between the Azorians and mainlanders, there's a great deal of discrimination uh, bet uh, from the mainland mainlanders towards Azorians out of ideas of, you know, uh, cultural backwardness and, and excessive religious piety and linguistic uh, differences. This is the baggage they took, they, they brought from the old country. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, and that baggage was sort of reinforced uh, here. And part of the I'm not. I'm not blaming Canadian multiculturalists for it, but uh, which is what's interesting about the context here is that part of the reinforcement of these stereotypes and that isolation, that distance, was the fact that um, multicultural, at least top-down uh, government officials, tended to uh, endorse these self-appointed leaders who right. were themselves mainlander. Uh, men. Gilberto, I want to I want to race to today now. Uh, it strikes me that it seems as though we're living a golden moment for the Portuguese community in Canada. Uh, now, these are not Portuguese immigrants; they're the children or even the grandchildren of Portuguese immigrants. But I look at what's happening culturally. Nelly Fortado is still going strong, and Sean Mendes is a is a force in music. Uh, you mentioned earlier Charles Sousa was the Minister of Finance for Ontario. Uh, his counterpart in in Quebec, uh, Char Carlos Leitao, uh, is also of Portuguese extraction. Are we living today uh, a moment of Portuguese influence ascending? Uh, I would say yes in some regards, and that is not just um, um, true for Canada, but I think it's it's true for Portugal as a as a as a country, uh, really, as a as a nation and, and culture, uh, and the two are very much uh, entwined. Uh, so, in terms of cultural representation, uh, I wouldn't. I don't know if the golden moment is the right term, but there is definitely a moment of much greater pride and self-assertion of Portugueseness among. Uh, Portuguese Canadian youth, and even third, and and I think in some cases we're getting to fourth generation, um, and uh, which compared with the experiences of Portuguese Canadian uh, youth in up to the eighties, really was significantly different. I mean, we have I've spoken, and I know of course a lot of people 
Portuguese Canadians who grew up in Canada and in Toronto in the 70s and 80s who would hide their Portuguese identity because it brought them no rewards. I mean, it was it was a point of shame uh, out of stereotypes, uh, uh, you know, ideas about the community as being uneducated or excess or just unskilled. And but so there's on. a new confidence now. Absolutely. And so what ends up happening, interestingly, is that the children of the second generation are far more Portuguese in terms of their assertion. <laughs> you know, they're wearing the Ronaldo shirts. They're having, uh. <laughs> you know, Portugal Football Federation tattoos. So that has a lot to do with the rising soft power of Portugal, which last year, if I'm not mistaken, was ranked by uh, Monaco, the, that uh, for, uh, current affairs, international affairs magazine, and I, I believe in ninth place in terms of the world's soft power ranking. And that has a lot to do with, obviously, tourism, uh, you know, progressive policies, and, you know, a, a number of a number of reasons. Portugal has come a long way. Yes. And then, of course, that and of course, soccer. You know, people like Ronaldo. There's, there's, there's uh, representations of Portuguese success and charisma and flair that uh, you know ex expats can uh, uh, point to. Uh, in addition to that, so beyond cultural representation, politically, yeah, there have been a number of local, provincial, federal elected officials. Maybe not exactly proportional to the population, but many in high-profile positions and important files, like the ones you mentioned, but also political activists, uh, especially among uh, trade unions uh, around construction, particularly community advocates and so on. But in other areas, for instance, in education, a community still struggles, as far as I know, uh, with a, a large degree of high school dropout, which is an, a, a long-standing and ongoing issue um, in the Portuguese community, which is at the same time its response to it as quite a lot of uh, stories of success in terms of how the community has responded as far as the organization uh, or organized response to it but it's a problem that is that it persists and it's it's a complex one we won't have time to talk about it here uh, and socially and economically generally speaking I think the Portuguese communities are doing fairly well uh, it's one of the communities with the highest rate of home ownership uh, in Toronto I believe it's true for Montreal as well and I mean, even those kids who, let's say, taking a stereotype here, but uh, but I mean, uh, these people do exist. Um, you say, you know, a young boy who drops out of school at grade nine and and goes uh, to work at a construction job, uh, and if he, uh, I say he because the vast majority of construction workers, of course, are male. Um, you know, if he stays with it uh, today. Uh, let's say, you know, at 40, which is my age, uh, they will have make a much better income and benefits and wages and pensions than, than, than I will. Will they retire in Portugal or will they stay here in Canada? You know, it's interesting. <laughs> I, I asked uh, uh, the, I don't know if he's still the, the priest at St. Mary's Catholic Church. Uh, and he told me, so this was a couple of years ago, mainlanders, for the most part, the immigrants, not so much the those who were born here, Mainlanders still want to have the remnants uh, being sent to Portugal and be buried along, you know, with their ancestors, while Azorians want to be buried here, and and that's a there's a significant. Uh, it says a lot. He says a lot. We, we didn't get uh, time to get into it, but it's a very important uh, dynamic between those two regions. Yeah, it's an insight. It's an important insight. Gilberto, your book is wonderful. It's full of insights. And I thank you very much for sharing the essence of it with me. Thank you. Thank you for your interest.
That was Gilberto Fernandes, the author of This Pilgrim Nation, The Making of the Portuguese Diaspora in Post-War North America. It's published by the University of Toronto Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does. There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. Please let people know how much you like these dialogues by using whatever social media you use. We'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who are making an investment in the hard work of bringing to life original documents in Canadian history. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly books, publishers, that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded in the middle of a pandemic on September 25th, 2020, by our excellent producer, Jessica Schmidt. Thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next time.